Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. I'm going to read our teaching text for today. It comes from John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13 and 19 through 23. It should come up there. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you guys so much. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Good to see your faces. Really good to be here. And if I'm honest, um, I'm just blown away at God's faithfulness to our church. Um, to exist one year in is, um, is just a joy. And um, you are the church. The people are the church, and which is, uh, just makes it so beautiful. Um, I'll share a picture with you here. Um, this is um, a couple weeks before March 11th. Um, but March 11th, sorry, this is awesome. Like, I'm just, I'm overjoyed, and it's, it really is um, so amazing um, to think about um, existing after March 11th, you know? Um, but um, it was a Wednesday night just like this. Uh, this picture was taken in February, but we were in the process of starting this church. We were in our living room, and there's a lot swirling around, right? Tom Hanks has COVID. The NBA is postponed for the foreseeable future. And we really sat around that night, um, and the prompt was, what is a story of hope or a story of fear that's just happening in your life? And there's just room for whatever that is to share. And we went around, we were scared, and we were confused, but we somehow gathered together, and we laughed, and we were present with one another, and it was beautiful. And then after that, we just scattered. Um, And it was, I'm going to be really honest, like, it was very confusing. Um, Katie and I would get go to the foot of our bed and we would begin to pray and um, maybe it was like a little like um, um, selfish at the time but I was so lost so I would just pray like God why did you call us to start this church if we can't even gather with people like God what are you doing why is this happening and so like over the next few months it was like time in school seminary coaching training all these things nothing can prepare you to plant a church in the middle of a pandemic and the next, couple of, uh, the next couple of years, actually, is high highs, low lows, but we just kept moving forward, trying things, 
succeeding, trying things, failing, and but doing our best to fail forward. And um, more than two years later, what I can say is that God is faithful. Like the metrics weren't always exactly what we wanted them to be. The community engagement wasn't always um, what we could do. Um, socially acceptable things, just trying to figure out what it was. Um, and God is faithful to us. And uh, the name reunion actually comes from um, St. Augustine who said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. A return back to God. We were made by God and for God and union. Loving union is the goal. And so um, if you think about uh, the prayers that we've been praying today and the stories that you've been hearing, um, I hope what you're hearing is that the church is a people. The church is never a building, which is, it's always fun to meet in a, like kind of a random space because we are the church. The people are the church. We're a praying and worshiping people. And so I'm so grateful. Um, if you're new, I hope this is a fun time um, to um, join in, exist in the life of our church. Please check out uh, our website. Please email us. But it's great to be in on what God is doing, and we're in on that together. Uh, I was reading this passage of Scripture this morning in 1 Thessalonians. I'll share it with you, and then I'll pray. Um, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. It says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted in love, and your endurance inspired by hope. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for our sake. Um, so uh, why don't we just do this really quick. Um, if you were at one of those dinners before, before the pandemic started, would you just raise your hand really high? Awesome. Look at you, like, huddled up right here. That's amazing. Keep your hands up for just a second. Um, if you joined us, like, during the pandemic randomly online at some point, um, maybe raise your hand. Yep, awesome. Katie, I know you did. That was awesome. It's a great hat, by the way. Um, what about, like, uh, you came about a year ago, 11 months or so. You can raise your hand. Awesome, awesome. I'm overjoyed. And what if you've been here maybe like six months? Okay. Keep your hands up. Awesome. I, I, this is a formal survey. Um, okay. Awesome. I'm so grateful for you. All right, let's pray. Um, Father, you're good. Um, and we really do want to be that. We want to be a people following you and seeking the good of our city. So help us do that today by your grace um, and with your truth. Um, I pray that... Um, Today would just be a fun marker that we could, um, after service, celebrate what you've done, tell stories, hear stories. Um, and most of all, what I hope that it would amount to is greater and deeper relationship with your son, Jesus. And so um, as we continue our emotionally healthy spirituality journey today, would you be in our midst? Um, if we bump up to anything uncomfortable today, God, would you be with us? And so what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get to this a little bit here. Um, this painting right here uh, hangs in the Art Institute um, at, in Chicago. And uh, I just, I love the sort of nonchalant nature of John the Baptist here on the right. He's just sort of like, like that's it. You know, he's just like that guy right there, right? Um, maybe what, is, what do you sort of notice about the painting? Um, John the Baptist and Jesus, cousins, they look alike, right? Uh, they clearly have been lifting. The artist has depicted them as like Greek gods bodily. 
Um, it's Jesus on the left, John the Baptist on the right. This is 1655, um, and so I don't know what was going on at the time, but maybe you notice they're pretty white, you know, for being Middle Eastern Jewish men who spent a lot of time outside, but we'll just, we'll let that go today, maybe another sermon. Um, if, you, if you can see the painting, it's a very big format, um, but if you see uh, John the Baptist on the right, there's a faint glow around his head, and then what you notice around Jesus is a larger glow. Uh, in the top left, uh, above the bird there, it says in Latin, all would believe through him. And then on the top right, it says, he will be great before the Lord. And I think the thing that I really appreciate about this work is I think that it displays role and functionality of the person of John the Baptist. When we look at the scripture we just read, John knows what his role is. He knows what he's to do, and he knows who he is. And what we actually find in the passage today is that a John is an example of extreme self-awareness, self-differentiation, which we'll talk about today. And what you actually get in the passage is a true sense of vulnerability, or what we might call the true self. And so let me tell you a little bit about John the Baptist, and then we'll kind of, what I want to do, the, the map I want to hear go through today is sort of a, a look at the false self, the, the image that we desire other people to see, and then how do we dig deep in our own life to see the true self um, as we truly are and as God sees us? And so um, getting to know John the Baptist, I think, will be uh, kind of a fun way to do this. John was an interesting guy. Matthew's Gospel says this. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So if John existed today, he would definitely live in Bushwick, and he you know, would be like a rooftop urban gardener or something like that. And so he eats bugs, he lives off the land, and we find out later in this passage that um, the text says that he never, um, he, um, he came neither eating nor drinking. Um, most scholars believe that he actually took the Nazarite vow, and so he never drank alcohol, and he never cut his hair or his, um, his beard, so the artist is also wrong. Um, then in, the, in, the, in our passage here in verse 5, it says, then, um, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so John is not seeking out the multitude, but the multitude is coming to him. The, the word all there is really fascinating to me, like all the people from Judea and the region of Jordan. So meaning what? Like hundreds, thousands of people are coming out to confess their sins and be baptized by John in the Jordan. And so John is like Brooklyn urban gardener, but he's also like OG megachurch leader, right? Like the crowds are coming out in droves. And yet, John had a very specific role in the life of Jesus and in the scriptures. In our text today, it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. And here, when you hear this, hear role, hear job description. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so John's job is to prepare the way, right? John's job is to roll out the red carpet for the king. He's the, he's the opening act that gets 20 minutes. He doesn't get the hour and a half set, right? He's the appetizer. He's not the main course, and he knows it, and he's okay with it over and over and over again. And so people are coming to John and they're saying, wait, are you the one? Are, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the one that's going to come and take away our sins? Are you the one that's going to come and repair things between us and between God? John, are you going to save us? And every single time in the Gospels, what we find is John is ready to say, not me. Right here, right? Like, not me. 
He just, he just keeps pointing to Jesus. I can't save anyone. I can't fix anyone. My job description is right here. And what the Jewish people in this time are, are, are longing for is a very similar thing that we long for is something or someone to come and fix us, save us, change us, make us whole. And John comes along and he's like, here's my job description. My job is to connect you to the one that can fix you. My job description is to come and connect you with the one that can change you, save you, deliver you. Those things are not my job. And I was reading this passage this week, and I thought to myself, I wonder if it just, just even a little bit, just got to his head. Like, look at all these people coming out, right? Like, crowds are coming, right? I know I'm not headlining the tour, but, like, I do get a spot in the front, right? Like, I wonder if people, like, just look at me a little bit. And I don't think so after reading the, the gospel text this week. And the reason I don't think so is because John said crazy stuff when people got there, right? People are coming out to, to hear him and to be baptized. And in, in, in one passage in Luke, it's, um, John says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's like, dude, they came to get baptized. Don't scare them away, right? And so in, in modern terms, like, this was not a, a successful campaign. If you're a PR consultant, you tell John, cool it with the brood of viper comments, right? Don't be so harsh. But John, over and over and over again, is seen as successful in, John, uh, in, in God's eyes because he's faithful in his job description. John rejects enticement of power, prestige, popularity, and possessions. And look what Jesus said about John. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Fascinating, right? No one is greater than John because John understood his role, he understood his job description, and he understood himself. Uh, here's uh, John Calvin. He says, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God, and without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. John, what we find in the passage is a true and authentic whole self. Are you a true and authentic whole self, right? This is what we're, where we're going today. What we wrestle with every day is the false and the true self. Do people know the real me? If people knew the real me, would they even like me? And so what often happens is we project an image, right? And this is the, the, the difference between the true and the false self. If you're following along, um, we're, we're in this series um, on emotional um, and spiritual health and, and the, the interaction, the interplay between these. And um, Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy uh, Spirituality, breaks down the differences between the true and the false self. And this week, what I, what I actually found is that there's a lot of Catholic theologians that over the decades, um, Richard Rohr and Thomas Merton, um, Robert Mulholland, have really come along and said, um, what is a spirituality of the true self? How, how do we get there, and how do we rip off the facade? So let me give a little bit of definition, and I want to kind of break down um, the differences here. The true self is who you actually are and who you're becoming in Christ, and the false self is an image or a representation that you would outwardly like to be perceived as, okay? Uh, Richard Rohr says it like this. He says, our false self, which we might also call our small self, is our launching pad, it's our body image, our job, our education, our clothes, our money, our car, our sexual identity, our success, and so on. These are the trappings of ego that we all use to get through an ordinary day. They are nice enough platform to stand on, but they are largely a projection of our self-image and our attachment to them. None of them will last. And I, the thing I like about reading um, Richard Rohr in particular is he's actually okay with this in one sense. 
He says we, take it, we end up taking it too far, but a false self is actually um, a platform that we stand on, meaning it's how we begin life. It's how we cope and make it in this world. And so maybe we could differentiate them um, like this. I think this might be a little bit small. Okay, it's not too bad. Um, the false self is an identity and a value attained by what we can do, what we have, or what others think of us, while our true self, our identity and our value are attained simply by accepting them, um, accepting the love of God. And so on the first side there, it's achieved, and on the true self side, it's a gift to be received. Our false self fulfillment is found in personal autonomy from God and in other attachments. We'll kind of break that down a little bit here in a second. Our true self, though, fulfillment is found in surrender and living out our God-given vocation. The false self identity is a, a romanticized version of who we want others to think we are. And our true self, our identity is who we are and who we are becoming in Christ. The false self is maintained by effort and control. And the true self is maintained by grace. It's a gift. Let that hit you a little bit. I know it's, it's information, but I think that if we allow that information to touch our hearts, what we actually find is, um, I don't know about you, maybe it's, the word guilty comes to mind. The false and the true self. The false self is always an illusion of who we are. It's an idol of our own making. And so the work then becomes, how do we become an authentic and whole self that's growing in awareness of who we are, but also um, growing in the ability to call out the thing that we present to other people? Uh, David in Psalm 51 writes, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And so here's what the false self does. It begins to craft an identity based on position, popularity, and possession. Some, uh, some of this um, Pete breaks down in, in the book. Uh, I was doing a little bit of research this week. Um, Pete largely got a lot of this information in the book um, from a really great um, Catholic preacher um, named Henry Nowen. Um, there's a really great YouTube video if you want to go take this further. It's called Being the Beloved by Henry Nowen. Um, it's the greatest 18 minutes of preaching, a little short in my opinion, all right? Um, but some of the greatest preaching you've ever heard, breaking down the idea of performance, possessions, and popularity, becoming the beloved by Henry Nowen. Uh, but I'll just break these down really quickly and kind of, kind of gloss over them, but maybe you might find yourself in them. The idea of performance, right? Grabbing an identity by saying, I am what I do, right? And, and, and in a city like ours, it's hard not to make what we do who we are. That's, that's like, that's New York for you, right? Titles, job descriptions, promotions, and um, there's a tension in that, I think, right? Like, we have to make it in the city. We have to be able to pay rent in the city. And so there's a, a sort of grinding that needs to take place. But the false self will say, I am what I do. The false self will also say, I am what I have, right? The, the possessions. Um, I was recently um, riding the train um, six months ago, eight months ago, something like that. Um, I was downtown. I was heading uptown. Um, I was coming to Union Square, and it's the middle of the day, and I've been trying to consciously, like, not have my headphones on the train. And so, like, I'm probably, like, weirdo, like, looking around, observing people on the train, but I'm kind of leaned up against um, uh, the railing, and I'm just looking around, and this guy next to me, like, very, like, normally dressed man, is, like, on his phone, and I just look down, and he, like, has his investment accounts open. And I was like, okay, I'm not, <laughs> okay, I am going to look. Um, <laughs> totally looked. Dude has his investment accounts open, and he's just, like, looking at it, and he's, like, staying on the front page, and I'm, like, 
$9 million. If I have $9 million, I don't mind the train. I don't mind the train. If I have $9 million, I'm not riding the train, okay? Dude has $9 million, right? I was just like, he probably has five now, thinking about the, the market, but whatever. If I have that much money, I am that. Like, I, I couldn't do it. I, 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 just, I just know myself. And good, good luck for that. Good, good for that guy, right? Like, I hope he, he's able to say that. But it's hard not to look at the things that we have to present them in such a way to say, this is who I am. Or, or what about this? I am what people think of me, or popularity. If I'm honest, like, we, we have pretty fragile egos, right? Thomas Merton um, talks about um, the best adjective for the false self is compulsion. It's a compulsion, needing ongoing and increasing affirmation. Do people like me? Do people admire me? Do people praise me? Do they hate me? Do they see my hard work? Do they see my success? And compulsion is this like a lurking fear of failure and the urge to cut that off by managing our image, working harder, buying things to impress other people. And what happens is, is when you have a false self, what you have to do is you gotta build another ring around the false self. You gotta hide more and you gotta build up a sort of facade. And the truth is, is maybe you might look at yourself and think, I don't even know who I am anymore. Uh, when Katie and I first were married, um, I was a pastor before we were married, and um, I would have meetings, and you know, we were just, our first year of marriage, we were you know, learning how to be married, and I was still getting used to like working and coming home at a certain hour and all, all that comes with being married, and so I, was, I would be late all the time, and I'd be in meetings, and it would be easy for me to chalk it up like, you know, I was in the meeting, I, just, like, I was just listening to the person, or we're just stewing on an idea, or whatever it was. I could give X number of reasons, but the thing is, is after reflecting on it, um, there's a, there was a reason why it was harder to go home at times than it was to stay where I was. Right in the meeting, there was a bit of affirmation. Right in the meeting, there was somebody seeing um, what I was like. Right, I want this person to like me. I want to, I want them to see that I have some wisdom to impart in their life. If I leave early, they may think that I'm not a good and present pastor, and so I stay here. And what happens is it sort of just funnels. If, we, if, we were, if we're willing to go deeper with ideas, even in community group this week, if you just want to chase down an idea, what I would actually find in my own life is I would think, I must avoid failure. Would people still love me or care about me if I didn't have a role or a position of power? Would people love me if I failed? If our church failed, would I still have value as a person? If, if the things that I set out to accomplish, I didn't accomplish, would I still be a whole person, right? And if, if we're honest, I, I'm going to go first here, but um, our motivations get pretty ugly, right? That's me. And I think um, understanding this and really having the humility to, to, to peel back these layers, we find that um, part of knowing God is knowing your own motivations and willingness to go deeper into your own life to know how God made you. I think a really good example of the false and true self, um, my wife um, was reaching, recently teaching a, a parenting class, um, and it was about coming alongside your child as you send your child off to school. And we were talking about bullying. There's a really great YouTube video, it's called How to Make a Bully from Scratch. And the video opened up by describing how bullies really begin as victims. And uh, the video breaks down um, ages and stages of the life of a bully based on their experiences, their parental guidance, their um, teacher's emotional reactivity. But what was brilliant about the video is that um, the bully has an external reaction 
the thing that you see, and then there's something actually that happens inside of them. And so what happens externally is aggression and exclusion and um, forcing victims to do things. And so the bully has a, a, a manifested outward display. And in the video they talk about this is actually something happening neurologically. The care systems in the brain are actually shutting down. And so aggression is the, the, the go-to, it's the thing that happens so naturally. And so what happens to the bully in high school or the teenage years is you tell them the consequences and the rewards. You tell them you're gonna get kicked out of school, your computer and your phone is gonna take, get taken away from you. And what does that person say? I don't care, take it. You say, well, if you behave well, I will give you X. And they say, I don't care. I don't care if I get kicked out of school. I don't care about the consequences. The false self outwardly declares, I don't care, but the inward true self is silently screaming, I don't feel cared for, right? There's a difference between what we project and display and what's happening. And for many of us, somehow, I don't know what it was for you, but life somewhere along the way taught you that your true self wasn't welcome, safe, or wanted. And so what did we learn to do? We learned to hide. And what we, we've constructed a sort of false self, and the false self is always going to try to cobble together an identity from other things, reputation, success, status, family, jobs, health, money. But an identity based on these things is always an identity based on idolatry. And the thing about idols that no one ever talks about is idols can be lost. You put value, you say these things give me meaning and purpose and value, but the thing is, is you can lose those things and they don't last. And so our truest self can't be something that we accomplish, earn, or prove. Rather, it's something we receive as a gift. Thomas Merton says it like this, every one of us is shadowed by an illusionary person, a false self. This is the man I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality and outside of life, and such a life cannot help but be an illusion. The secret of my identity is hidden in the love and mercy of God. Therefore, I cannot hope to find myself anywhere except in him. Therefore, there's only one problem on which all my existence, my peace, and my happiness depend, to discover myself and discovering God. If I find him, I will find myself, and if I find my true self, I will find him. So let's leave with a little bit of hope, maybe some action steps. How do we begin to relinquish the, the false self? How do we take steps to become a true and whole self? I want to look one more time here at John the Baptist. In verse 19, it says, and this is the testimony of John, right? People are coming to him and saying, like, tell us, dude, who, who really are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And I love that the writer here seems almost surprised in verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. The writer is exploring the idea, right? Like, okay, where, where is this heading? And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you a prophet? He said, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And so we alluded to it before, but look at the language. Who are you? What's his answer? I'm simply a voice. 
I, I'm just the voice. I'm, I'm, I understand it looks like I have widespread notoriety and respect, but I'm just a voice. And he seems to be totally unaffected by his success because he's able to say, that guy, not me. And this is what uh, the, the gospel writer John goes on to say about him. Even he who comes after me, the straps of the whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John has a clear self-differentiation, right? He says, I know my boundaries. I know my markers. I know who I am, and I know who Jesus is, right? I, I stay in my box. I stay in my lane, and I'm not to take on that role or that functionality. And this is what self-differentiation is. It's, it's, it's the ability to be able to be in relationship with the people closest to you and to know your emotions are not my emotions. Your, your experiences are not mine. We should seek to understand them, but we're saying this is what I can control. This is who I can control. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in, in the coming, coming weeks. But to be unaffected when we're growing in self-differentiation, to be unaffected by criticism or praise, the ability to leave your family of origin and to become a whole person separately and apart from your parents is a step of self-differentiation that we're growing into. And then here's the part that I think is really um, illuminated in this passage, is the work of self-differentiation is also away from the false self. It's away from popularity and possessions and prestige. You can actually say, I am loved, I am a whole person in Christ, and so, great, you get a lot of possessions, you got $9 million, like, awesome. But that can actually, you, you come to a place where you can say, actually, I'm, I'm a whole person if I have $9 million or if I, I don't have $9 million, all right? And then um, let me just skip to this, this last part, the second thing here, is what this would mean, and I love the example that is given here with John the Baptist, is we need to be growing in vulnerability, Right? Um, I think about the word authenticity, right? The word authentic comes out a lot. Like that experience was very authentic. Here's what it means to be authentic. This is my, like, my quick definition of it, is to be truthful with your vulnerabilities, right? Authenticity is to be truthful with your vulnerabilities. I think about the beginning of a relationship. You're testing, right? You go on a, a first date, just exploring whatever, probably not going to be too vulnerable in that space or you shouldn't be if you're looking for some advice today on the dating <laughs> realm. Like, test the waters a little bit. Maybe date two, date three. But what, what, what are you doing? You're, you're sort of exploring. Can I be my true and authentic self seen by this person, right? Dating should have been the example, like, all the way through, right? The false and the true self. But what do you come to in the dating relationship? You come to a threshold moment that you have to choose to cross or choose to move on from. And the moment that you choose to cross is that of greater vulnerability. It's a moment where you take off the false self to show what's really there, right? To put yourself out there. And every relationship, if it's going to continue, needs a moment of vulnerability, authenticity, that threshold that actually needs to be crossed over. Now, now we should be wise in, in guarding some of that, right? But there are moments when we need to say, I'm going to put this out even though it may not be reciprocated. I'm going to put myself out there in, in, in this way and I'm open to the possibility of rejection, but I'm hoping and longing for a reciprocation. And this is the beauty of something like vulnerability. And hopefully this is what this passage is helping us do today, is vulnerability always begets more vulnerability. 
right? Or it's, or it's out, outright rejected. But I think even, um, even as you're, you're telling your story this morning, Katie, I'm like in the back, like thinking through moments of God's faithfulness because a little bit of vulnerability begets more vulnerability. And so the world, your parents, your friends, they're gonna keep coming and asking you and they're gonna say, what are you working on? What are you producing? How are you grinding? Where are you traveling? What hill are you conquering? What are you creating? And th that's good, don't judge them for that. But Jesus is gonna keep asking us, who are you becoming? St. Augustine said, in loving me, you made me lovable. And so does God love me because I pass through this amazing community? Does God love me because I give my money away and serve the poor? Sometimes I believe that, but the answer is no. The gospel of grace says Russell is lovable for only one reason, because God loves me. Does God love you because you pray 30 minutes a day or because you work with diligence and care and do everything unto the Lord? No. The gospel of grace says you're lovable for only one reason, and it's because God loves you. That right there is the target. That's your truest self. And the work is peeling off the layers of the false self to really believe, who am I? I am one beloved by God, and I was made by him and for him. All right, let's pray. So, Father, I, I love you, and I'm so grateful again for um, your stewarding and your care of our church and our community. Truly, you are um, so kind to us in your grace, and I, I thank you for uh, today, this journey that you have us going on. Um, the reality is, is each one of us is sitting in here, and we're having a conversation, and I hope it's one with you. It's a conversation of, am I welcome? Am I whole? Am I a true and authentic person? Did I display a false self for someone else to see? Am I faking it? And I pray that in those moments, um, we wouldn't be met by a voice of condemnation, but that we would be met uh, by a voice of love that says you desire us to become a true, whole, and authentic self that's fully loved by you and fully known. And so I pray that uh, still over the next 9, 10, 11 weeks as we go through this, um, that that's what would be taking place in our community, that we would be learning how to manage and push through conflict, that we'd be becoming more self-aware about who we are, but most of all, that we would be reminded that our identity is fully and completely whole when it is found in you. As we come to the communion table uh, this morning, may it be a reminder of your good news grace, and may we be sent out of here to love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.